Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. My name is Samuel Nerding. I'm Bicom's research associate and deputy editor of Fathom Journal. It's the 24th of March 2022 and today I'm delighted to be joined all the way from the US with Grant Rumley. Grant is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute where he specializes in military and security affairs in the Middle East. From 2018 to 2021, Grant served in both the Trump and Biden administrations as an advisor for Middle Eastern policy in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Grant, I believe this is your first time on the Bicom podcast, so it's great to have you on. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to get through, uh, particularly with the Middle East and, and, and Europe. Um, perhaps I can start with asking you about, obviously, Ukraine, which is where everyone's talking about at the moment. And given your, given your recent um, job in, in the US uh, administrations, it'd be good to kind of get your assessment on what you think the, what impact you think the Ukrainian war might have on the US security and defense posture in the Middle East. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's a million dollar question right now is, mm-hmm. is how long is this, this war, this crisis going to last? And um, the, longer the, la- the longer it lasts, how much of an impact will it have on sort of our ability to, to maintain our presence, not only in the Middle East, but globally? I, you know, in, in the near term, I think it, it doesn't really hurt our efforts in the Middle East. I think we, we largely have the troops and the presence there that we need to conduct sort of the, the, the current missions that we have there. I, I, I do think it probably limits us in some aspects were a crisis to break out in the Middle East. So, you know, we have uh, right now, I think, more troops in Europe than we've had in almost 20 years. Uh, part of that contingent is uh, members of the 82nd Airborne and their, their sort of quick reaction force. And they were used in the, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The 82nd was securing the airport. So it's, it's hard to foresee another crisis on that scale of Afghanistan taking place in the Middle East. But were one to occur, uh, we may be a bit strained in terms of uh, being able to place people in the region. Uh, another, another aspect it could potentially strain us would, would be what I would call partner reassurance missions. Uh, so, so a good example of this is uh, after the, the Houthi missile attack against Abu Dhabi last month, the U.S. sent in the uh, destroyer USS Cole and uh, a handful of F-22s. Uh, that is something that, that we're able to do in times of um, sort of general calm uh, globally, but, but may become constrained uh, the longer the Ukraine plays out. Um, and we may not be able to simply just send in ships and planes uh, whenever, whenever we need. Uh, we may be having to divert them to, to Europe. Uh, long term, though, I mean, if this if this if this war plays out longer, but but even just just by merit of having a land war in Europe right now, I, I think there's there's a couple of schools of thought in U.S. government right now about the future of our presence in the Middle East and where our resources and focus should be concentrated long term. And this is not a Biden administration thing. It's it's not even really a Trump administration thing. This is multiple years, multiple administrations going back to our, our quote-unquote pivot to Asia. Uh, and especially from a military lens, a lot of Pentagon planners have, have long made the argument that, you know, we need to be, great power competition means focusing our attention where great power competition is taking place in Europe and the Indo-Pacific. And so 
you saw this manifest itself in the the 2018 national defense strategy the pentagon released that said you know, russia and china were sort of our primary challenges uh the biden administration has called china our pacing threat um the 2021 interim national security guidance from the Biden administration said we are going to right size our presence in the Middle East. And so all of this is a way of saying that a land war breaking out in Europe is likely to strengthen the argument of those uh, in government and outside of government, making the argument that we are overstretched in the Middle East or overstretched globally and putting too much focus into the Middle East uh, and that we need to sort of divert some of those resources uh, elsewhere. So uh, I think, you know, we, we're still sort of reacting to contact and seeing how this how this shakes out. But uh, in terms of a near term impact, I don't see sort of a heavy uh, impact on the Middle East. But but down the road, I can see certainly that continued tensions and escalation with Russia will sort of lead to the maybe natural conclusion from from those in this town to 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 focus a little bit away from the Middle East and more towards Russia. Interesting. How about for Russia? You, you mentioned there about the US maybe thinking about overbearing and re kind of deploying its its forces. What about for Russia? I mean, in the last couple of years, Russia, maybe along with China, has been viewed as this resurgent power in the region. Um, do you think this can and will continue post-Ukraine? Do you think Russia can maintain its military might there if it does get bogged down in, in a long-term conflict in yeah. its borders? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, it, it, I think it will complicate Russia's presence in the Middle East, certainly, both, um, both the strain on their forces uh, and what they've committed to the fight in Ukraine, but also uh, the strain on their economy and the sanctions that the, the West has imposed on Russia. I, I think it, it's, they're prob- probably going to get complicated on two primary fronts. The the first is what I would consider Russia's traditional power projection into the Middle East. And so uh, that is what we would think of as a sort of standard military uh, force posture. Uh, things like their, their presence at bases, their use of the Wagner Group. So, uh, you know, in Syria, they have both their, their Wagner Group mercenaries on the ground. They also have uh, a pretty hefty presence at the Humaymim Air Base uh, and at the TARDIS uh, Naval Facility there. Uh, they have Russian, they've, they've deployed air defense systems in support of the, uh, the regime in Syria. In, in Libya, they're heavily involved in the conflict there, primarily through uh, the Wagner Group, but they are also, I think, keen to develop the Al Jafra Air Base there as sort of another launch pad for them. They've, uh, they've been in talks with Sudan about a potential naval facility there. Uh, I think all of that can, uh, you know, can start to get squeezed, basically, if they find themselves with a need to surge in more forces uh, into Ukraine and to fill gaps there. There's already reports that they're recruiting uh, Syrians and, and, and others to come join the fight in the Ukraine. And you know, they have a lot of material in the region that uh, that may ultimately be called back to support the effort in Ukraine. The longer it goes and the, the more poorly it seems to go for Russia. The other the other front where I could see their their future presence in the region getting complicated is a little bit harder to measure. But that's that's simply an, an, an influence. Uh, there's been a lot that's been talked about with regards to you know, Russian wheat and Ukrainian wheat and the effects on food security in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, the sanctions on Russia, uh, Russia's economy uh, are going to play a factor in their relations in the Middle East. But 
I tend to think uh, the biggest hit they're going to take in the Middle East is, is the future of their arms sales. The sanctions that we and our partners are putting on, on Russian and, and on Russia's defense industry are going to make it very hard for Russia to source the materials it needs to continue to develop its arms and then export its arms. Uh, Russia has struggled for a few years now, post the Crimea invasion in 2014, with, with finding components for its fighter jets uh, and with, uh, with ultimately with sealing the deal on some of its fighter jet sales. Uh, they, they, Russia primarily looks at, at a handful of countries for its arms sales. Arms are very important to the Russian economy. They come in typically right after oil and gas and exports. In the Middle East, there are a lot of willing customers of Russian mm -hmm. arms. They typically come with, with perceived less strings attached. The Egyptians have bought the Sukhoi 35s. The, uh, the Turks have bought the S-400 and famously got Katza sanctioned and kicked out of the, uh, the F-35 deal. The Emiratis uh, had a, an agreement in 2017, 2018 to jointly develop a fifth generation fighter with Russia. So there are a, a, a lot of sort of customers and potential customers of Russian arms in the Middle East, it's just going to get harder for Russia to do that. And so I think it will cause, uh, it'll, it'll create sort of a gap in the arms market in the Middle East. The Middle East buys more arms than any other place in the world. Uh, so they will continue to look elsewhere, whether they look at the U.S., Europe, or China uh, to fill in that gap is, is probably the biggest question. Yeah, I think we've already seen reports recently um, about Egypt taking a second look at their their Russian arms deal and maybe Israel behind trying to trying to get the US back in, in into yeah. Egypt in terms of their arms. Um before we go on to to Iran and, and JCPOA, I just thought I'd take advantage of given the fact that you're in the US, it'd be great kind of for our audience in the UK just to kind of see what kind of reception Biden's received domestic support on his Ukraine policy, given that they've had a very kind of large sanctions policy. They've got a lot of people within that regime, but they've not obviously committed themselves militarily, whereas I think the UK here is giving some military aid. So it'd just be good to kind of get a sense of how much support Biden has received in the US given on his Ukrainian policy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's broad bipartisan support for mm. continuing to supply Ukraine with the necessary components it needs to wage this wage this resistance against Russia. There's mm. Uh, you know, we're, we're supplying stingers and javelins and food, fuel and ammo, uh, all things that from a, you know, if you're putting on your Pentagon cap, it, all things that we think fly a little bit under the threshold of becoming a direct participant to the conflict. Right. I, I think, you know, there was there was that push from from members of Congress to supply Ukraine with some of the MiG-29s from old NATO partners. Uh, but then when the logistics came out that those MiG-29s would have to fly from NATO bases right. into Ukraine, it would, you know, that that sort of passes that threshold. And I think that's where you get on sort of a shakier ground in terms of in terms of support. I, I think he's he's navigating an approach that that a majority of 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 Americans broadly support. I think, you know, it's it's tough because because Americans, you know, there's there's kind of a joke that, you know, if you if you polled Americans, do you want X or Y? And, yep. you know, they could say 90 percent would say we want X. And then the follow on question is, are you willing to sacrifice this to get X? And it's like 10 percent of people say yes. You know, so uh, we, we like our cake and, and eating it, too. So I, I think we're, we're perfectly happy uh, with with the level of support now. But, you know, there's other repercussions there. The sanctions are hurting the, the, the oil and gas market 
and will undoubtedly sort of strain Americans at the pump here. And so there, there is, you know, I think there's, there's probably a clock ticking in terms of Americans' patience with this, but, but as of right now, I think he has, has broad support. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's, uh, let's move on to, to Iran and JCPOA. It's, it's a topic which is kind of rumbling under the surface and, and soon unlikely to kind of either explode or, or move on to the next level. I mean, obviously our, our listeners in, in Israel are a bit bewildered by, by the, the reported US position um, of JCPOA and, and I'd be good to kind of assess what, how you think Biden's handled Iran since he, he's come in. It was obviously a tricky situation when he came. So it'd be yeah, good to get your assessment on, on how he's handled it so far. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great question. I don't know if I have a great answer for it. I think, you know, what one thing I think we're seeing play out is that uh, Americans, when we're in negotiations, at least at least with with Iran, we tend to view the negotiations as happening in their own in their own sort of bubble in right. their own yeah. atmosphere, and uh, we we don't like to associate. Uh, associate sort of military threat of military force or economic uh, costs on the person sitting across from us. We like to just focus on the negotiations uh, and and try to find the middle ground through diplomacy. I, the trouble with that approach is that I, I don't think the Iranians view it that way, and I don't think I don't think a lot of people in the world necessarily yeah. view negotiations that way. But uh, even you know even going back to the Obama administration. It very quickly took the threat of military force vis-a-vis Iran off the table, uh, started easing up some of the economic costs during the negotiations. And when Trump, uh, when the Trump team came into office, it was sort of the opposite of that. It dialed up the the, the economic pressure, the, the max pressure campaign. It put the use of military force on the table in, in sort of, I would say, probably inconsistent ways uh, on, the, on the one hand, sort of, you know, killing Qasem Soleimani, uh, but on the other hand, not reacting when uh, the Iranians shot down a drone. Uh, you know, but but with with the the Trump administration's approach was to was to, you know, they obviously walked away from the deal and they dialed up the economic pressure and some of the military aspects of the pressure. But the pathway to negotiations wasn't always clear. You know, yeah. Secretary Pompeo had his conditions, but it was it was almost sort of hard to imagine the Iranians going into negotiations that way. And so it, it was almost like we sort of overcompensated. Uh, and then the Biden administration comes in, and it's it's I, I don't think it's a full reversion back to back to the the Obama administration's thinking, but I think it's probably closer to that school of thought. I I mean it's. I think they came in and they saw themselves as sort of inheriting uh, Trump's, uh, the Trump team's max pressure campaign, having walked away from a deal. Uh, obviously, views on the deal had shifted both before it was negotiated in 2015 yep. and then, then once it was torn up and now where we are. Uh, you know, they've, they, this administration has said for months that, that the window is closing on a potential agreement, that, uh, that there's only so, so, so long you can negotiate it. Uh, we, we still seem to be negotiating. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think it, to our partners in the region, I think the interpretation might be that, that this administration wants a deal more than a good deal. Uh, and yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if that's, if that's the case, but it's, it certainly, I think, is true that that this administration wants to find 
some type of stopgap on this issue uh, yep. to, to sort of pause and freeze the Iranian enrichment progress so far yep. and, uh, and then think through the next steps. Fair enough. So, I mean, yeah, I think in Israel, they've, they've described it as the Biden wanting to deal at any cost, um, which you might think is a bit, bit unfair. Um, but one of those costs that apparently is being reported is that they're prepared to remove the RGC from the designation list. Um, I wonder if you think that is a wise move, if you can see the benefit in doing so, um, given that I think it said that a lot of the sanctions would still be in place on the RGC. So, but yeah, what do you think about that move if, if the Biden did do it? Yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I, it's, it's always hard to, um, to, to sort of assess what's happening in negotiations when you're, sure. when you're on the outside. And so I, I don't want to, don't want to shortchange them at all. I, 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 I don't necessarily see what the exact benefit is for mm. us. I know the, I know Iran wants it. I know they, they, they've made it one of their issues in the talks. Uh, you know, my, my colleague, Mike Singh noted the other day that it's, it's sort of a, a an arrangement without any real clear benefit for us to the U S yeah. uh, it's not clear what exactly it will do for, for the IRGC. Yeah. Uh, as you noted, they'll, they'll be removed as an FTO, but there's still sanctions on them. And it's, it's, it's very, it's not likely to improve uh, foreign investment opportunities in Iran. Yeah. Uh, in exchange for, you know, it's been reported that we'll get a guarantee from the Iranians that they will somehow de-escalate in the region or they will commit to respecting borders. That That, that is basically worthless. Um, yeah. And it's, it's probably more importantly, it's going to turn up the heat politically here in the U.S., but also infuriate our partners in the region. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, the tricky thing with, with FTO designations is, uh, they they cause as much strain on on those getting designated when they're designated as as they do when they're removed on our partners and their perceptions of the mm. of the designation. And so uh, this is obviously a touchy issue for many in the region. We we've seen this play out with the Houthi designations. Uh, we the previous administration designated them. The Biden administration removed it. Uh, it is uh, a core concern for our partners in the UAE who yeah. uh, who have really uh, really pushed back. I think against that decision, and really want the Houthis designated. And so, uh, it's 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 quite unclear to me what exactly we're going to get in exchange for potentially lifting this, and yeah. and if the the juice is sort of worth the squeeze. It sounds like it's a good example of of how perceptions and narratives can really dominate. Um, the Middle East, given the fact that you said that the practical reality is quite minimal for both sides, yet it seems yeah. like the, the, the perception narrative from from the girl, from US partners in the region is, is more interesting. I mean, talking about kind of grander kind of abstract thinking, it'd be good to get your, your sense on US strategic thinking in the region. Um, I, I see it as the US has shifted from perhaps multilateralism, multilateralism under Obama, to, as you said there, to kind of great power competition under Trump and now Biden, particularly with Russia. Um, but at the same time, you could argue that the US has also kind of been signaling to its allies in the region about the need to become more selfish, self-sufficient in terms of their own kind of security. Uh, to me, those two aren't really that sustainable. If the US kind of still wants hmm. these allies to be on their side, they have to kind of give them some, some support yet. Yeah. So did, did you think those two positions are sustainable? Do you think that 
Um, is my reading correct, or do you think there is uh, another way of explaining kind of U.S. strategic thinking? No, I, I think it's absolutely correct. I think there's there's an inherent tension when the U.S. is has made it clear in mm. our planning documents and sort of our strategy documents in uh, in in our behind closed doors our communications yeah. that. The primary focus is uh, is China and Russia. Secretary Mattis said in 2018, terrorism is no longer the the primary focus of of the U.S. military. It's it's on preparing ourselves for uh, competition long term with China and Russia, and so it 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 does depend on the on the region you're talking about. I, when you're when you're talking about the uh, the regions where we think great power competition will be at the fore, so Europe and, and the Indo-Pacific, it's not so much that the U.S. is emphasizing self-sufficiency among partners as it is emphasizing what we call interoperability or our ability to, to work and coordinate together uh, on and project power militarily together. I, yeah. I think a big impetus for that would be the AUKUS submarine deal we saw yeah. last year where the, the, the U.S., the U.K. sort of jumped in and uh, and worked, uh, worked to, to supply Australia with, uh, with, with some nuclear submarines. That is, uh, that's the type of, I think, uh, relationship that we used to have in the Middle East with a lot of our partners that we mm. used to we used to emphasize that sort of joint operations the the ability to 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 work together to beef up arms sales beef up security cooperation and uh, and to ultimately commit ourselves to a potential conflict on the ground uh, that s- simply just isn't there from a bipartisan yeah. standpoint. Americans don't want to get involved in another conflict in the Middle East. And so as such, our adversaries in the region very much know that it's unlikely we're going to commit troops and resources to a conflict. And it leaves our partners in the region feeling uh, a little bit perhaps hung out to try. Uh, I I think, you know, the Middle East approach is on self-sufficiency. It's it's. Part, part of what we seek there is for our partners uh, to, to be able to maintain the, the status quo in the, in the region, a, a stable status quo in the region. I think uh, it, it probably stems from, from really from two reasons, and I'm, I'm not certain I agree with, with both of them, but, but the first assumption, I think, from the U.S. standpoint is that the conflicts in the region can be managed with a minimal U.S. footprint. Right. That by fighting ISIS, we we through what we called by with and through, uh, by basically providing the air support and some assistance on the ground, we were able to minimize our footprint uh, and support our partners in 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 taking out ISIS and uh, and you know reasserting uh, asserting control over territory. I think the general assumption is that that's the model going forward yeah. for us operations in, in the middle east and the second and i this is the one i think i question a little bit the second assumption is simply that the great power competition is not going to take place in the middle east it will take place in europe and mm. in the indo-pacific and not that it won't take place entirely in the middle east but that the the focus militarily will be elsewhere and uh i think the argument that 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 i've made and 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 certainly certainly others at the at the washington institute have made in town is that 
great power competition, strategic competition, whatever we're going to call it, is going to play out globally. Uh, mm-hmm. Russia and China are going to are going to compete with us yep. uh, everywhere. And so, if we are, you know, it's it's one thing to swing the heft of our military focus away from the Middle East, but if we are going to do this, uh, we need to work more closely with our partners, provide them with more robust support, and uh, be a little bit more uh, responsive in uh, in addressing their their needs. There's, um, you could say there's been a kind of a, a kind of a deconfliction or de-escalation trend in the Middle East, kind of maybe for the last year to eighteen months. Um, you know, we've seen kind of Turkey, UAE, kind of returning to to talks. Um, there's even kind of reportedly behind the scenes Saudi Arabia and Iran return to talks, and we've obviously seen this week or earlier this week a sad Syrian prisoner Assad going to UAE. Um, how has the U.S. kind of, in your view, viewed those? Do you think they've taken advantage of those de-escalation kind of trends? Do you think it's encouraged it or is it kind of at a bit of a loss given, as you said there, about kind of great power competition and, and how it navigates the complex region of the Middle East? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, in, in general, the U.S., I, I, so I tend to view them separately. The, yeah. the normalization with Assad is, is one thing and then the, the sort of, regional diplomacy we saw we saw break out last year is, is a different thing. I think on the, on the latter, the U.S. tends to look at good faith negotiations, especially negotiations to de-escalate tensions. Yep. We always look upon those favorably. Uh, and so I, I don't think there's, there was any heartache necessarily about, about um, the Saudis and the Emiratis reaching out to the Iranians. Uh, I, I think what we were probably conveying was that, you know, don't get your hopes up. Yeah. And it certainly looked as if the Saudis and the Emiratis were negotiating in good faith. And I, I don't think you could say the same for, for, for Iran. I think that was, that, that's been borne out with the continued attack uh, attacks by, you know, Iran's proxy, the Houthis against Saudi Arabia and the Abu Dhabi missile attacks, uh, even the ballistic missile attacks of, of Erbil. Yeah. It shows that, you know, Iran may be willing to talk, but, uh, but, reining in the reeling in their their proxies is a is another issue um on the on the normalization thing with Assad, you you know i i think it's 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 obviously more complicated the the first question i tend to ask myself is who's doing the who's doing the normalizing and and why are they doing it um there's there's generally two camps The, the first one is is probably those with the direct need for for the war to be over and to move into the post-war phase and so I tend to think of uh, Jordan as the, the the primary candidate in this camp. It's taken in, uh, you know, over a million Syrian refugees. Its economy has suffered greatly. It tried to open its borders with uh, with Syria a couple of years ago, uh, and and has sort of worked to to establish some type of uh, stable, normal relationship with uh, with Assad and with with Syria in order to try to improve its economic uh, conditions and, mm-hmm. and its situation there. And so, uh, and, and obviously now there's this massive drug trade uh, along its border with Syria. And so uh, Jordan has sort of a direct equity in uh, some type of Syrian stability. And uh, if that's with Assad at the helm, then I think Jordan just sees that as the necessary evil. Uh, the the second reason is probably those who sense perhaps maybe an opportunity uh, with 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 Assad uh, the the argument that 
you know, it's commonly made um, by those like, like, you know, the UAE or those, those sort of trying to rationalize how the UAE is approaching its relationship with Assad is that uh, perhaps by more engagement with, uh, with the, some of the Arab countries, they yeah. can wean Assad away from, uh, away from the Iranian axis or the Iranian orbit. Uh, I don't think many people in DC take that seriously uh, or believe that to be true, but that's sort of the argument that that yeah. is made. And so, uh, you know, again, I, I think it's just it just kind of comes down to what your view is of the Syrian conflict. If you view it as um, as as essentially over or as ongoing, and then if 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 it's over. Uh, does Assad deserve to have any type of traditional head of state role? Uh, you know, that's that's a heated debate here in the U.S. There are obviously huge moral implications, uh, I think, for for treating someone like that um, as as um, legitimate. But uh, but you know, our partners in the region they they tend to they. They, their interests aren't always 100% in line with, uh, with, with, with ours. And that's sort of a normal relationship. And, uh, and so I think we're just, we're, uh, we're, we're watching the developments and, um, and trying to, you know, ultimately uh, trying to ensure that there's, that there's some viable way forward. Great. Perhaps we can, we can end just on, on the U S Israeli relationship, defense security in the region. Um, during your time in the office of the Secretary of Defense, um, you held many roles. Um, one was the Israel director. So it'd be good to kind of get your, your view on, on the US-Israeli relationship. It's kind of been said in the region that a less powerful US in the region is bad for Israel. Um, as you said earlier, kind of states looking to hedge them, their, their policy. And if US is less, then they might turn to Russia and China and elsewhere. Did you think that's a fair assessment. Would you is that something you advocated for having a strong U.S. is good for for Israel in the region? That's it's 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 a it's a good question. Uh, I I think certainly uh, there is there is that argument that uh, mm. a more withdrawn U.S. Um, may not necessarily be beneficial to our partners and may and may in some regards uh, impact uh, impact their security. I, I, I tend to think that the, the Middle East is, is different right now. Uh, Israel's uh, opening of diplomatic ties, its normalization agreements with, uh, with Gulf partners, uh, its close coordination with, uh, with traditional partners, or yeah. like the, the recent summit we saw in Sharm with the, uh, with uh, with Egypt and the UAE, there, I, all those things to me suggest uh, a deepening of Israeli integration into the region uh, yeah. and an ability to coordinate on on more complex levels. Uh, one good example of that is Israel's integration into CENTCOM, which yeah. which happened last year and which allows allows for Israel to uh, Israel and and Arab partners to coordinate uh, sort of above the board, and uh, you know I I think that can, uh, you know, that can, it's not necessarily a substitute uh, to, uh, to maybe a heavy military, U.S. military presence in the region, but uh, it, I think it further bolsters Israel's security uh, in, in different ways. And so I tend to think the, the military to military relationship is quite strong. I think uh, the, I think the Israelis uh, certainly certainly look at us and our focus at great power competition, and yeah. and I think I think really understand that um, the the sincerity with which we we uh, we try to 
convey our, our focus on China and Russia and, and the need for us to, to sort of think long-term here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think so long as we continue to, to, to maintain these close communications, this close coordination, uh, providing uh, for, for Israel's, uh, common de- Israel's defense, uh, that, uh, that they'll be, they'll be able to find sort of the middle of the Venn diagram where we're able to, uh, to perhaps shift some of our focus and our resources elsewhere while still maintaining, uh, a commitment to our partner securities in the Middle East. I, you know, I think, I, yeah, I think our argument is, is commonly that, you know, the Middle East is probably right now one of the one of the more uh, advanced theaters. One of the one of the theaters at the fore of our competition with Russia and China, just by given the nature of of their presence there. And so we have to demonstrate to our partners uh, and our allies that uh, that we're able to to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and perhaps finally, I can ask you. Um, I can actually flip that question and ask you. How important is Israeli security defense to the U.S.'s kind of strategic position in, in the region? How much does the U.S. look to Israel to kind of lead on some of its kind of um, policy goals and, and, um, and its kind of like positioning in, for the future for its kind of own, own um, objectives? Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, Israel, Israel's security is, is, is incredibly important to the U.S., yeah. uh, Israel's uh, Israel's ability to uh, to defend its own borders and uh, and to secure its interests and uh, is is a key a key component of U.S. foreign policy in the in the Middle East. I think you know I th- I think the the hope with moving Israel into CENTCOM and uh, and the Abraham Accords is that uh, Israel's security interests. Uh, that are shared by others in the Middle East can uh, can be sort of joined together and mm. uh, and and fused in a way that that can take some of the some of the uh, I don't want to call it a burden but but um, perhaps some of the strain off off what the U.S. historically saw itself as needing yep. to do in the Middle East yep. uh, in order to in, ensure a stable market for the free flow of commerce. Uh, ensure that that terrorism wasn't threatening uh, regional governments, uh, basically to promote regional stability. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Israel is a key factor in that. And um, and the more that Israel and uh, our partners in the region can work together, uh, the the more of a net positive it is for both the region and the U.S. I think. And so, that is uh, yeah. that is a key component of our foreign policy in the Middle East, certainly. Uh, Grant, there's so much more that we could talk about, but um, we have to leave it there. Maybe uh, we'll get you on next time to to talk about the other the other issues. Um, Absolutely. But for now, that was a really interesting. Thank you so much for for fascinating insights, and um, yeah, maybe in the future we'll have you on for for some more of it. But um, for now, Grant, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sam. Appreciate it.